0: coming up on Venture Voice. By the time you get to 300 people, you know if you're either the execution machine or kind of the vision machine, and you're probably not great at both. So go ahead and get yourself a, a COO type and let them like run the day-to-day growing of the business and the go-to-market motions and the trains on time and make sure the roadmap's happening. You know, different people lean into different parts of businesses.
1: Welcome to Venture Voice this is Greg Gallant. I'm really excited to have Mike McDermott on today. He is the founder of FreshBooks. If you're a freelancer, you probably know FreshBooks. It's one of the most popular ways to do what every freelancer hates to do but knows they need to do, which is send invoices to your clients and actually make sure you get paid. Now, Mike has been a listener to this podcast back In the old days, over a decade ago, when I first started this podcast, I heard from Mike, been following what he's up to. It's amazing what he's built. He's grown his company to over 500 employees and now has customers in over 100 countries. Mike's got a great story, though. He's a scrappy entrepreneur himself, and I think he got himself into a situation a lot of us can relate to. We start something, we have no idea it'll be big, and we cut some corners. Mike was great at branding, at getting customers to use his platform. I remember back from 10, 15 years ago when I knew him, he was going city by city, meeting with customers, great community builder, but he acknowledges it wasn't built on a solid foundation. They did not build the tech right in the first place. There's a great story he tells in this show about how they had to rebuild the entire tech platform from scratch in kind of a stealthy way. Mike's also very open about his decision on how to raise money. He bootstrapped a while. He raised tens of millions in venture capital, and it's a tough choice for every entrepreneur. So I I was really glad that Mike was willing to share all that. That and a lot more stories from Mike. I hope you uh, really enjoy. Mike, welcome to Venture Voice. Thanks for having me, Greg. Let's go all the way back, Mike. What was your first time putting up a web page on the internet, or how'd you get into working on the web? I know you've been doing it a long time.
0: Yeah, 1999. It was uh, I want to say Tripod or Tri Cities, one of those things. Website for a uh, ultimate frisbee tournament I ran. It's just a one pager, anchor links, that kind of thing.
1: So what was your life like when you were doing this ultimate frisbee? Were you in school? Were you out of school? Were you thinking at all about business at that point?
0: I was in fourth year. I had just basically dropped out of the business school program I was in and switched into uh, just a BA in, uh, in English in the end, having left the program.
1: So you've got your Ultimate Frisbee website, you're graduating school, uh, what, what was the next move? Oof, major
0: uncertainty. Uh, <laughs> didn't know what I was going to do. You know, you're finishing school and I had, you know, had this passion for playing Ultimate Frisbee and then that led me to say, why don't I organize a, a tournament? that had been inspired by playing and traveling in Europe of all places. And they, they do the tournaments differently there where people kind of come and stay for the whole weekend. So when the tournament I ran was a little more ambitious than most because we fed and housed people for 48 hours. So it was, you know, 600 people you're looking after in the end. Anyhow, so that was, I was doing that in school. And, you know, I like so many people, I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I was just sort of feeling my way through and, Spent some time working in the production side of the film industry and great uncertainty in the early days with uh, what my future helped.
1: What was the first time that you uh, you started your own business? Well, I would say it all depends on how you want to
0: measure it. So that fourth year, once I left the business school program, I actually started two businesses. One was this event, which you know I had to market and sort of run the logistics and all that stuff. And then the other was a league for the same sport, funnily enough. So those were two things. I think those were the first businesses, and I was kind of funding them, and myself had to get the line of credit going and all the rest of that. And then, uh, interestingly, the event that I've been speaking about turned into a web design and consultancy business because I had gone ahead and taught myself how to build websites. And then turns out my caterer for that event needed one, and the rest, as they say, is history.
1: So you build the website just so you can further your ultimate Frisbee thing. When the caterer said, I need a website too, did you jump at it? Were you... Trepidatious and saying, "Hey, I want to be an ultimate frisbee entrepreneur."
0: (laughs) Yeah, I love the sport, so that was pure passion. And then, yeah, I was enjoying building sites. It was just kind of an opportunity, and I kind of walked through the door.
1: Nice. So you build the website for the caterer. What was the next client? And at what point did you realize like this web design business could actually be a sustainable business?
0: Yeah. So, funny thing about the universe is you start doing things and things start coming towards you. And so I got a referral from, and it came out of the blue, but basically a family friend and it was really, I guess, the son of somebody my parents knew. And he had been building a website for a small business owner who ran a travel and tour company and was, was trying to basically wind that client down. He didn't want to be doing this work on the side anymore because it was too much work and so that he introduced me with that owner and I started working with them and then that was two clients and you know at this point you know maybe you're making 1200 bucks a month or whatever you're scraping by kind of living in an apartment trying to figure out what the heck you're going to do and so it was you know hugely precarious for a long period of time but then you started networking with people and trying to just let people know what I was up to, and things started coming my way. Uh, just little projects, and then they got bigger and more sophisticated over time.
1: Cool. So, at its height, how big was your web design business? You know, I probably went ahead and
0: cut it off at the knees. Long story short, I, I built that up. It was probably, I don't know, two, three hundred thousand dollars, that kind of thing. But along the way, I accidentally saved over an invoice and started building software to run my design firm, and so my most of my attention went there. And so we really were almost trying to not grow that business. I wanted to basically just do enough to feed the team and then have me being able to spend as much of my time as I could on building the, the new software company, which, which turned into the, the company I now run called FreshBooks.
1: And I know so many people have consultancy companies. I mean, my first business was building websites back in high school, so I know that world well. But I talked to so many entrepreneurs who started a um, consultancy and now they want to do a product and I know there's that dilemma where, as you said, the cash was coming in through the consultancy, and here you are slaving away at a product that you know, isn't going to show any real revenue for a while. You know, what do you remember about that dynamic? Like, How did you justify spending all your time writing this software with an uncertain future when your real money was coming in through the clients?
0: Yeah, for me, it was really just kind of a passion, follow your heart kind of thing. I just loved trying to build a product. I'd never really done that before, had any experience of it. I really do think product management and entrepreneurship are really sort of shortchanged by the education system of today because it's very rare that you get an experience that gives you any sense of what it's like to create something at that scale with those dynamics and variables, all that good stuff. And so the nut of it is, uh, once I started doing that, I, I was hooked. It was all I really wanted to think about It just had a lot of energy for it, and so what that just got me doing was trying to figure out how I could be the most efficient I could be with my consulting business. And the purpose of that was I wanted to make sure that we could retain the services of the people I had working for me, and get more and more of their time actually working on, (laughs) on this new business, as well as letting me spend you know more than eighty percent of my time on it. So that was my purpose, and we found a pretty good way
1: to do that. Was it called FreshBooks at the very beginning? And what what was the very first vision for what it would be?
0: Yeah. So the first vision for the product was, I mean, you've got to go back to 2003 here when we were sitting trying to figure this stuff out. And most of the technologies used to build web applications didn't even exist. But one of the things that was kind of popular then was this notion of like an intranet site or something like that, where you'd go to a website and you'd log in and there'd be like, I don't know, message boards, forums, whatever. And so what we caught onto to this idea of, hey, what if we made this thing? we're going to call it second site, and that's exactly what we called it, which was something a small business owner could put on their website, and then their clients could go and log in and and see things like their invoices. That was the initial vision for FreshBooks.
1: How exactly did it pivot from that to being more what it's known for today, like an online invoicing site? So over time, I guess we just
0: realized, I mean, the, the truth of the matter is it's actually not that different. It's really just the login mechanism that's different. So instead of it being something that a client would go to Somebody's website and log into it. Really, is now the owner sits in their account and fires invoices out by email. You know, we sort of made those adjustments on the fly, and so that notion of sort of logging in and having that login look like the owner's website is, at least for the customers that we serve and our purposes, it's kind of gone away. But everything else is still pretty much true, which I don't know in hindsight is sort of interesting.
1: And how do you go about? I mean, the world was so different in two thousand three. You know the way people would search for stop and build sites. How'd you go about finding the first few customers?
0: Well, the work I'd been doing in my agency was not entirely. We were doing web design builds and things like that, but we'd evolved it into what I what I call conversion consulting. So we offered a bunch of search marketing services. So we'd help build people, basically build their traffic, and then we'd help them convert it. And then by the time you know, I was winding that thing down we didn't really even write HTML or do anything like that anymore we were just basically working with teams inside larger organizations and coaching them with how to get you know better returns from their their digital efforts when we got started out, the agency I ran was a search marketing firm, and so we were helping small business owners go and get new customers so I, we had those skills and we applied them to the business like the day we launched you know second site, which it was called then it had like two hundred backlinks and all this kind of stuff, so we were using all those things to to our advantage but interestingly our first customer cr3 media who i remember speaking with we called them like instantly after they purchased came from a uh, a referral from a partner website like somebody who helped people collect online and they found a link they clicked and they bought so that was when we first started learning about partner channel of influence
1: yeah, and tell me uh at what point did you feel like you know, the business had it hit its first mile, so I don't know if that'd be a million in revenue or, or something like that. But when did it get to a scale where you're like, hey, I, I'm confident I can pay a handful of people's salaries on this thing and it'll be a going concern?
0: You know, there's a variety of answers to that question. So I think there's this moment where you know you're on to something. I think that's the most relevant one for me. And that moment came when I was doing some research. We had lots of people who would sign up for our service not a ton of them paid. It's because we hadn't really figured out how to get the pricing and packaging model straight. But we had lots of people trying it. So lots of trials. And I would do a lot of research in those days that and literally, usually by telephone, I'd call up, I had a structured seven-question interview, and I'd go through it and just you know ask them questions like, how did you hear about us? And But one of the questions was, in your opinion, what's the single greatest benefit of the service? And this individual said, well, listen, instead of waiting until the end of the month to do my invoicing and billing, I do it ongoingly because your service is so easy and fast to use. And because I do it ongoingly, I actually make more money because I don't forget work that I did, and I actually get paid faster because my bills are going out you know two, three, four weeks sooner than they would have otherwise, and I'm spending less time doing it, which I love because I hate doing this kind of work. And so that call was the sort of the last time I doubted that we were you know, doing something of value for others. We always had lots of excitement around the customers, but it was that call and that moment, really, you know, and in back, we were working in my parents' basement at the time. That was the moment that I was like, okay, we have something here.
1: How'd you end up in your parents' basement?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we didn't start out there, but... Uh, so you actually graduated to your parents' basement. No, well, no, no. I was living
0: away for a number of years. And then you know, Toronto real estate is a thing. So I was born and raised in Toronto, Ontario, went away for about 10 years, came back. And I was working, I living in my own place. And you know, twice inside of six months, the place I was renting got sold. And then the new people would come in and be like, well, we want the space. And it's like, okay, I guess I got to go. And my parents were about to go away for uh, the summer. They have a place out of town. They're like, why don't you come and house sit for us for a little while? I said, okay, that's fine. And we left uh, three and a half years later. Uh, and we had six people showing up every day by, <laughs> by the end. So. They mistakenly, they thought they were getting a couple months of coverage for their home and (laughs) they wound it up with some tenants for a while. So
1: Uh, they come back from the summer and you're still there with your team and they they can't get rid of you? If you want the details, my parents, I'm a fourth kid of four. My parents had
0: finally gone and tidied up the basement, which was just a complete disaster. It was a place where, you know, you'd have friends over late at night on the weekends at high school, all this kind of thing. And so they finally, like they painted it, new carpet, new couch you know, just weeks before I came in to do this house sitting. Yeah. So we were firmly ensconced in there and, and kind of ruining it all over again for them. Uh, <laughs> anyways, that's, uh,
1: yeah. What was your, your team dynamics like back then? Cause I know as uh, you with the first few employees, it's hard enough to separate your personal life from the startup. So they all must've gotten to know your parents pretty well. Right.
0: Oh, a hundred percent. Um, you know, First things first, you got to try and separate your own life from whatever. So I would like dress up to go to work just to get myself in the right mindset. I've been doing it for years because I've been working from home. That was one thing I did. But yes, like this guy, Daniel, who came to work with us, he would literally like he'd be walking out at the end of the day. He would lift the pot off the top of the stove and like put his finger in and see what my mom was cooking for dinner sometimes. <laughs> and they, my parents fell in love with them all. They're a really great group. They basically got a whole bunch of kids back is basically what
1: it turned into. That's wild. How is it for you as a, a manager with that first few team? Did you have any difficult moments? Did you have to let anyone go or have people who were you know, having issues with each other? I could just imagine that being uh, such an intense environment with those first few people.
0: Yeah, we were really thoughtful about who we brought on board and, and why. And so we spent a bunch of time on it. We had no idea what we were doing. Like hiring is definitely like a pattern recognition thing. I'll go ahead and say, I think one of my super strengths, I don't have a long list, but is sort of people and getting what makes them tick and these kinds of things. So I think we had that going for us. We just solved for people who were almost kind of like loyal and wanted to do what we were doing. And so that solved a lot of problems. Like we really didn't have much in the way of interpersonal at all. It was all pretty friendly dynamic. Everybody was competent and capable and kept growing with the business for a lot of years. You know, and growth like that really solves a lot of problems because people can go and extend their tentacles into other things. And so we didn't, we didn't have any attrition or any need to move anybody out in the first number of years. That didn't happen till, till later. I remember the first person we exited, it was like, a suffice it to say, it was a, a real challenge to figure out how to do that, especially I've never worked anywhere else either. So I didn't really know anything about that kind of thing.
1: Did you ever raise money in those early days, or was it 100% bootstrapped? So we started out bootstrapping it with the revenues
0: from my consultancy. I had two co-founders, and so we all put some money in. And and then my mom actually, very wisely, the bank wouldn't lend us any money. So we had a PhD in computer science, an electrical engineer, and me who, most of my time in a business school program, didn't finish it, but whatever. And in the bank wouldn't lend us like $5,000. And so she said, okay, I will roll the dice with you all. The name of it's going to escape me. But we basically got a $50,000 line of credit that she was the backstop to. Okay, we were on the hook and we were going to have to pay her back or whatever. But that was 50 grand, first 50 grand. Seemed like an enormous sum of money to me. Yeah, but you know, I, I was also like, listen, if I'm in the whole 15 grand because I owe a third of it, that you know, seems manageable. I'm 20 whatever, I'll figure it out. So that was the first sort of capital raise. And then we had some other people who you know, would come by the basement and took an interest in what we're doing. My brother-in-law, who had been a very successful operator of companies, he was like, he wrote us a check for $50,000. My best friend's dad had actually been to Harvard Business School and uh, was a retired executive. And he wrote like a $40,000 check. And so we started cobbling it together like that. And then eventually met some people who were a little more from our industry. Yeah, you know, one of the founders of Rackspace was somebody who we sort of built a relationship with, and who you know in time became an angel investor and a big influence on the company in, in so many great ways.
1: And as you're taking these checks one at a time, like how are you structuring it? Is it a convertible debt, or did you do a, a round where you sold them in chunk of the company? So
0: suffice it to say, we were clueless about how to do all of this stuff. Okay if you rewind the clock i don't think the technology entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs in general necessarily appreciate what a blessing the internet has been for them where you can go and read about how to negotiate a term sheet and what's in all this stuff like this to me was pure mystery and so what the exact arrangements were like half the time i can't even remember i think we just decided at one point the company was worth a million dollars and so you know then people were basically their checks would be based off of that and at some other point, we just decided it was worth two million bucks, and people were like, "Okay, fine," you know, and they just took a an equity stake in line with their check. And so, yeah, so we, we have some people who have like hundred x returns now, which is really fun,
1: <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> including like my mom. Uh, so that's good. Your mom's a legendary angel investor now. or better returns than many VCs, anyhow.
0: Very shrewd. She negotiated warrants with backstopping this—the ability to convert and have some warrants. <laughs> So, uh, got to credit. I had no idea what she was doing, but uh, good for her.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I remember those days. That's why I started this podcast at '05. There was nothing on the web about what a Series A was or how you do one or all that stuff. Where now, there's countless reading on all that.
0: You can edit this out if you like, Greg. But I got to go ahead and testify that I remember listening to Venture Voice when I was on a plane, like going down to San Francisco to start to learn or, uh, you know, get involved with the community and the culture down there and building Web 2.0 companies and all this stuff. Venture Voice was certainly a, a source of inspiration and, and guidance for me. So thank you for that uh, way back then.
1: Oh, well, thanks for saying that and for listening. So tell me, as you're scaling it up and you, you've got these handful of checks and, you know, your revenue starting to grow, how did you think about that? Like the idea of like, do you keep scraping by with a check at a time and then growing the revenue? or do you go to Silicon Valley so back in the Web 2.0 days and try to do your series A with one of the hot valley firms or, or some kind of institutional investor that'll write you a big check?
0: So raising capital has been an intellectual, emotional journey for me, more so than a lot of entrepreneurs. So, you know, the first thing is basically any entrepreneur who has an idea and a product company, like almost every single person, you you very much get to this point where it's like, oh, if I only had more money, that would kind of solve all my problems. And so you start thinking about the money and raising it and all that stuff. It's sort of natural, it's just what happens. And so without question, I was thinking about that a whole bunch. The flip of that is I also grew up at a time when venture capital was not as founder friendly as it is today. And there were a lot of poor actors in the ecosystem and I would say the market in which I was operating at of Toronto, Canada, you know, really didn't have a good reputation for what was going on. So small checks, you know, terrible terms, huge percent of the company, all the bad things. And I also knew enough to know I just did not have the sophistication to work with, work with VC. So we would take meetings with them sometimes and go and see them. And we were kind of like, air quotes, trying to raise capital, but we were just blundering our way through those meetings because the level of sophistication was so mismatched. I remember sitting down one time with this guy who was like, okay, so let's just walk through the funnel that you're proposing with your business model. So it says you're going to get a million people to your website, and then that's going to turn into like 100,000 trials, and you're going to get 10,000 paying customers. He was basically sitting there saying, "Like, does anyone else see a problem here? Like, How the hell are you going to get a million people to your website? I remember sitting there and being like, yeah, hey, you make a good point. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, <laughs> and then we went and did it. We stuck with it. We didn't take the capital, but we went and did it. It was an eye opener because he was just walking us through the funnel, and I didn't even really know. You know, like we knew those steps, but not like how hard it would be to figure all that stuff out. So, what is the point? The point is, it was definitely um, thinking about raising capital and being concerned about the the impedance mismatch and the pattern recognition between VCs and, and myself, and being really customer focused. I was just always so concerned. That we would basically lose control, not because I wanted to be the only person in control. It wasn't that I wanted to hang on to control. I was more concerned about what would happen to the, the constituent groups, the stakeholders, my customers and my employees, if sort of the, let's call it the financial types took over and started running the show. And the example for me, because this is you know back when Dell Computer was like in its heyday, was like showing up to a board meeting, and we are huge on customer service and we still are today. Think Zappos, think Rackspace—like just all about customer service. I didn't want to show up to a board meeting and have somebody tell me—and this is how I thought board meetings worked, or whatever—but show up and tell me, "Okay, we're outsourcing our customer support to you know some other country somewhere that's lower cost." Because I just knew that would be you know at that point in time for sure the wrong thing for us. And so it was that fear of losing the ability to create the right experience for our customers, which I thought would help grow the business, that that terrified me. And you know, it's been really interesting in my career. To see how that particular item and the importance of customer support, I think in huge part thanks to social media, you know, like there's just been such a change in perspective on oh, this really matters, and you got to do a good job of it, and yeah, a lot of people getting sort of and now it's
1: customer success.
0: Well, there you go. And so, anyhow, so it's been a fascinating and I think very positive change, along with I think the venture capital industry, which is less a cottage industry but still has elements of that starting to really line up behind founders and realizing that you know, this is a referral game and you know, we want to be with the, the best folks. So let's try to do right by everybody, which I think is a better dynamic for everybody.
1: So my research, uh, from what I could tell, you went from 2003 all the way to 2014 before you ever took institutional investment.
0: Yeah. No venture capital until 2014. So yeah, over a decade.
1: I think I read uh, that Forbes estimated you scaled over 20 million in revenue. Over that time frame? Yeah, before you took the money? It's a great question.
0: I don't remember exactly our revenue scale. It may have even been a little bit shy of that, I, to be honest. But yeah, we were growing at a good clip and
1: yeah. But it was north of 10 million by then or? Yeah, I'm pretty confident in that. You know, as you're scaling that, this was always a challenge I faced in the early days of Muckrack. How did you manage like, just that dynamic between like what your revenue was and how much you were comfortable spending on salaries and everything else to know that you'd have enough money for a rainy day or have that cash buffer.
0: Well, the first thing I know is we were pretty clueless and we were doing this stuff all intuitively and didn't even know how to begin to go ahead and get the answers. And so, you know, with regards to what to pay to people, a lot of that was like, here's what we think we can afford. And, you know, so these market rates. And then you hear from people when you speak with them and you get market feedback. So it was kind of an iterative process to get to the the right numbers to bring people on. I, I think in those early days, you're generally hiring, well at least we were hiring people who wanted to be part of the kind of thing that we were doing. And I think that's something that you can't underestimate. Like be who you are, be what you're doing and let people kinda opt in. We were not going and getting the twenty year veteran engineer who, you know, is making hundreds of thousands of dollars. But we were getting people, you know, our seventh person to join the company came from IBM and wanted to, you know, sort of take a haircut to be part of something smaller. And we were really figuring that out as it pertains to having, you know, the cash buffer. For years and years, Greg, we practiced what I call dolphin dives. So our business model had this great virtue of being a recurring revenue model. So it still is today. It's a subscription model. You sign up, and after a 30-day free trial, so we had really good visibility into our future. We were growing like 300, 400, you know, 200 percent a year, kind of thing. And We had come from a basement where we ran super lean, and so we had that DNA. And so, you know, we'd raise some angel money before the institutional money, that kind of thing. And so, what we did is we would take that capital, and we would basically say, "Okay, how do we solve to grow as much as we can to get back to break even with this capital?" And that was my path repeatedly. I called them dolphin dives. You know, you know, dive down, and you kind of gradually come back up. But these businesses, you generally have a lot of cost control, and you have great revenue visibility or predictability. And so long as you're kind of roughly on plan, like we were I guess one year we missed our revenue by six percent in the history of the company. Otherwise, we've been, you know, almost every year within uh, sort of four or less percent of whatever the goal was. And so it gives you a sense of okay, we can predict things pretty well, and that's always been that way. So that's what we would do. We'd raise, you know, the forty thousand dollars, the fifty thousand dollars, and kind of manage it in that way.
1: So whenever you'd raise money, it's like spend just a little bit ahead of what the revenue would otherwise dictate. Is the way to think about a dolphin dive. In the angel rounds, we we did get into raising like, you know, there's a quarter million dollar check. And it's like, okay,
0: you know, we weren't quite running a break even, but that enabled us to spend, you know, significantly more at that time. I think the real point is we would target a terminal point off in the future where the bank of balance was going to be zero and we needed to sort of break even by. And we always knew we could pull in some expenses because we were, I mean, we had the advantage of, I guess it's different than scaling with salespeople, but we were doing like the direct go to market. And so, with that, you can, you know, if all else fails and you really need to get on the right side of just being profitable, you can just pull in the spend. You know, that was our how you sleep at night thing. We didn't have to let anybody go. We could just spend less on advertising and we'd get back to break even pretty quickly.
1: It sounds like it all worked in retrospect at the time. Did you ever have trouble sleeping at night with cash flow issues or other elements with the business?
0: The things that kept me up at night were just being psyched, like loving building product, and then I think it was the, the existential threat of feeling like we weren't going fast enough. Like we had a huge $20 billion competitor at the time and Intuit, you know, who's the 80,000 pound gorilla uh, based out of Silicon Valley and all, all this good stuff. And we were this tiny little thing and feeling like we just had to go faster but didn't have the resources. So that was a tension. This would bring you back to capital. And then it's like, oh, but then we're going to totally lose our way if we go ahead and do this. So it's just like, you know, you're just running on this kind of hamster wheel of those thoughts at night. But yeah, a lot of the nights that kept me up where I was just fired up thinking about building.
1: And what finally changed your mind? In, in 2014, I read you raised $30 million. What finally tipped it after 11 years of bootstrapping?
0: Yeah. So what happens, you know, as an entrepreneur, your job is to, you know, first of all, create something. And then, at least in technology companies, to go ahead and de-risk it. You, know, you want to de-risk the market risk. You want to de-risk the product risk. You want to de-risk you know, the team risk. Those are three of the big ones. I think there's a fourth. I'm just not remembering right now. But the point is, systematically, we would work through We sort of proved there was a market. And people wanted this thing. We built a product that people loved. Like We knew the customers loved it. And then, uh, I guess, the business model risk. The business model was great because we had this you know, predictable revenue. Everyone loves subscription. We kind of got lucky there, I guess. And then the last thing was team risk. And the, one of the things that you know had held me up so long and just being afraid to bring on professional investors and kind of fearing losing our way, being so mismatched in terms of knowledge, I wanted to de-risk things because I knew enough to know that, hey, when people invest, they want a return. And they expect a return. And they reasonably should. But if I don't have the thing de-risked enough, like it could go sideways and then they're not making money. And then maybe I'm never getting a cent from this. And I wake up one day and I feel like an enormous failure because I had something, I brought somebody in. And by bringing somebody in, I actually ended up you know, failing for everyone. So that was a source of concern. So I worked through the market risk, the product risk, with the business model risk. And then we, we got to the team risk. And I had been struggling. We got up to 100 employees. Everything in the business was running through me. People thought I was a complete control freak, and I was getting to be like a thing slowing everything down. But you know, from my perspective, I was just like, why can't people just do it right? I don't want to be doing this. But i the answers I don't get, I, I don't always love. And so we hired this one individual and became our CTO. And that was the first time I felt like I hired a real executive. And I don't mean that to disparage anyone who was part of our team back then. They're actually running a whole bunch of companies right now. So there's this great network of FreshBooks folks who are you know, executive team members in places. But at that point in time, I just needed something more. And so as soon as I hired that first one, I was like, oh my gosh, I need a bunch of these. Over the next, I think, twelve or fourteen months, we basically rebooted the whole executive team. And then I was like, okay, now the only thing holding us back is capital. That was my, you know, sort of order of operations. I just didn't have the pattern recognition or the knowledge to understand that, you know, every people problem is a people solution. And once I found that first executive, that was like, oh, now I understand how we scale any more of these people. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, now we just need capital. That's what went on behind the scenes.
1: Yeah, And talk to me about that. I think there are a lot of entrepreneurs they they get something successful, they have the crew that got them there. When it comes to bringing in an executive, you know, how do you go about like figuring out like you decide you need the executive the whatever, now that you got the CTO, your your head of marketing or whatever, other executive you want to bring in, How do you find that person where their expertise is greater than yours? And then also, how do you introduce them into the organization where they're walking and being the boss of a bunch of people you might've worked with for 10 years?
0: Yeah, and what do you do with the folks who've been there for a long time and their feelings being kind of layered and all this stuff? So none of it's easy. I will go ahead and say we used a recruiter and I think that was probably a bit of a game changer because they knew what was market and what we were looking for and all of a sudden the candidates were much better. I still spent a bunch of time with each candidate and making, you know, going through them and not accepting the first ones. But that was actually very helpful, very expensive, seemed like a lot of money, but very helpful. So that was thing one. In terms of bringing people on and having somebody on top of, you know, th- that is hard. But I think we were growing, we were succeeding, and people under, you know, there was kind of an understanding of like part of growing is going to be you're going to hire these executives over time. Like people knew on some level this was coming and it was just, hey, which department first? And then, more to the point, well, what happens to people who are like on the management team who, you know, we're working with that person and how do we deal with all this kind of stuff? That was a bit of a, a trickier wicket. And I wanted to keep everybody basically if they wanted to be there. And so we tried to set up roles where people kind of had a choice. In some cases, that worked out for years and years. In some cases, people were like, thank you for trying. It's been three months. I just don't feel the same way about things anymore. And for me, that was like, okay, I totally get it. And thank you. And uh, what can we do to help you that you're choosing to go to your next thing? So everyone sort of behaved well. I think it was more around helping them get there as individuals versus, you know, anybody saying, you know, but me, 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 me. We didn't have a lot of that, you know, which was great. And a credit to the people.
1: now my understanding is around that time you brought in the CTO, you were realizing that the original tech platform that you started on wouldn't scale.
0: That came a little later, uh, but in a nutshell, yes. And we had taken a couple runs at this problem before. So basically, we had a lot of founder code—that's what I'll call it. So uh, you know, my co-founder, who wrote a lot of our backend, was a computer science prof, but not a software developer. And so he did a lot of smart, fast things. As uh, uh, Pat is the founder of Rackspace, said to us, like, "Hey, listen, you folks suck at technology." But you solved the hard problem, which was you built something people love uh, <laughs> so that was kind of I think an astute assessment of the situation as we started to hire engineers who knew how to build software they were having to contend with you know, the mistakes of the past plus you know also in hindsight being what it is you know the pressure to release things on time in certain ways and so we were really focused on user experience and just trying to get stuff out into market and so we were we were not doing the work to go back and deal with technical debt as we developed it. And it was all really new feature development. And eventually people would be like, okay, you know, forget it. It's gone too far and I'm just going to go start working on this thing. And our software development manager kind of made those cases for the team. And we'd say, okay. And we sort of tried to rewrite our backend a couple of times and frankly, sort of failed and which led up to this, okay, we do have to solve this problem. How are we going to solve it kind of thing? And we did end up eventually, uh, basically uh, around the 2014 timeframe, starting to say, okay, what does replatforming look like and how might we?
1: And how do you go about replatforming? I mean, it's such an intimidating thing. I've been through that before, like having to recode everything from scratch, rebuild every feature you have. This is a long file.
0: (laughs) Suffice it to say, it's questionable whether you should ever really do it or just do the continuous refactoring. For us, we felt that user experience was... We had leadership and user experience, why people love the product. It was super intuitive to use, but it felt dated. And more to the point, the way our technology was organized, which was not a clean architecture where front-end software is separated from back-end software, we knew we needed to evolve our our user experience, but we sort of couldn't because everything was glommed together. And so that's what uh, precipitated and sort of led us to believe that we needed to do a rewrite to separate the front end and the back end effectively. We did have a back end service, which helped us with that considerably, but we needed to do everything on the front end again. And and if you ever used FreshBooks Classic and some of new FreshBooks as well, I think some of the genius was in our front end because we just, we handled a bunch of decisions for you and remembered a bunch of things. And so to your point of rewriting every feature, I'll tell about how we did it in a second, but by the time we got done, what I realized is yeah, we we had like a lot of the features, we could check them off the box, but the software was not the same. Because when you build legacy software, you hear from customers and you make like these little things that never show up on a feature list, these little changes that customers come to love and expect. It's why they choose your software. And those don't make it in on the rewrite. And it turns out that they're like more than half of the software you need to write. And so you underestimate how long it's gonna take and how much it's gonna cost and all that the stuff that goes into replatforming. But you had asked around, how did we do it? And there's a bit of a novel story here. What we ended up doing was first trying to define the problem and success, which was, okay, we're going to rewrite our software. We need a more modern UX. The world has changed. You know, when we started out, there's no mobile phones. Today, people with technology expect to push a button and somebody delivers food or comes and picks them up or whatever it is. It's a very different world. And that in mind, we said, well, how do we get there? And we have a a series of values of FreshBooks, very values-oriented organization. And We have a 10th invisible value called stealth. I was really concerned with not letting our competition see what we were doing. So that was a consideration. We also wanted to make sure that if we built something, it was actually better than what we had built in the first place. And you know that's hard to do. You, know, you can have a, oh, it looks better, it feels better. But no, we wanted empirical evidence. And so for these reasons and more, what we decided to do was actually create our own competitor. And we built, literally organized and incorporated another company. Its name was Billspring. It had no association with FreshBooks at all. It used some of our backend technology, but it was an entirely new front end. And we went and built our new offering there. And we experimented and we ran traffic there to see what the conversion rates were so we could compare between platforms to see, hey, is this product, we might like it better and think it's awesome, it's our new baby, but what do customers believe and how does it perform in terms of the business model? It was a really great experiment. Plus, you know, one of the things when you're building something like a new platform, you really want people to be able to take big, big risks. I believe that. And I think one of the reasons that, Things like replatforming and new efforts inside big companies don't work is because let's say Nike builds software. I'm just making this up. If they go or a new shoe, if they want to do a totally radical new design. They come up with something completely off the wall and it doesn't work or people twist their ankles or something like this. That's on Nike. And people are like, oh, Nike really messed this up. And so you, you kind of, you can't fail or you can't fail to that degree. And so by the virtue of creating this other company, Billspring, our team could take enormous risks Things like losing data, right, which you never want to do in software. We can't do that with a FreshBooks brand. But eh, if you do it with this other thing, which we started out for free, eh, it doesn't really matter too much because it's just kind of a Petri dish, right? That all worked you know, really well until this moment when we got a phone call from somebody who was calling to cancel their FreshBooks account. You know, we asked, oh, okay, we've canceled your account. Why are you canceling? We're just curious. And they said, well, oh, I'm moving to Billspring. And that's when we knew we were on to something. So.
1: Did the FreshBooks team know about Billspring? The FreshBooks team did. So one of these
0: great things about our 10th value of stealth is we're very transparent inside the building. This was a great example of it, but the expectation that that information just does not leave. And so a couple hundred people kept this secret for like 18 months as we went and rebuilt. It was a very special time at the company.
1: And how did you coordinate it off? Was Bill Spring at a separate office? Did it have a separate cap table? <laughs> Did they report to you? Like,
0: Yeah. So while the external and legal difference was sort of queer, I don't think we went to the point of having a shareholders agreement for it, which is a, a reasonable thing to have done. We just had an incorporated company. So I guess we would have had some stuff in the background there. But no, it was really just a FreshBooks thing. And it was parts of the team. What happened was it started off before the first designs even came through and we were deciding if we would do this and tasking the team with, okay, well... Listen, we're thinking about it. We're open to it. Show us what you would do. And they went up into the loft. We had this loft space in one of our offices, and there was like five people went up there for like two weeks. They were up all night and like coming up with all kinds of crazy approaches. They're recreating our category and our product. That's how it started out. And then we said, okay, we had these gates. Okay, I feel like that design looks good in in one dimension. Go ahead and put it in front of some customers and you know see get some feedback. And they iterated and. And then we said, okay, well, we will build, if you can build this much of it in this time frame, then we'll keep going to the next gate. So we had these like funding gates that the team had to kind of get through to keep the project going. And so they had to make a lot of decisions to keep things on track and rein in scope and change this, that, and the other. But that's how we managed it. And so progressively went from like five people upstairs to like now add some engineers writing code and to like, now it's a third of the product development group to now it's two thirds of the product development group to now it's... Yeah, ninety percent of the product development group. And that's how we did it.
1: How did you interact as CEO? You'd mentioned you started as a product guy. It sounds like that's where your heart's been. And up to a hundred people, as you were saying, everything went through you. Did everything go through you at Bill Spring too or who called the shots on like what feature made it into Burrow Spring and what didn't?
0: No, this was a different dynamic, which I think was great and part of what this CTO helped with. The people building it, the product, so he was not the product person. And so we had a collection of product people and they had grown up working with me for a number of years. And so they really knew like copywriting, user experience, and they really understood the problem domain. They took on the job of really it's like, how do we build a new user experience for a category we know and understand pretty well? Those are kind of the constraints. I don't know if we ever really wrote that down, but everyone sort of had that understanding. And so what we did was more of this like, you know, two week interaction where they would go away, come back, go away, come back. And then that turned into sprint reviews once we were building stuff of like, go away, come back. And so I started my involvement and in my kind of air quotes management of it was really at that two week interval after that. That's how we did it. And I think the prior history before meant those teams were making, you know, 99% of the same choices I would have, which was helpful, you know, for better or for worse, (laughs) Uh, I guess. But since we'd spent so much time together, it was, there wasn't a lot to worry about in terms of why we are building something. It was just more, is that the standard of experience we're looking for? Do we want to make some tweaks? And, you know, I was more the outside set of eyes on a two-week cadence to ask some questions, really. That started to become more management by question asking than direction, which it had been before.
1: How did the acquisition process work when you decided? Okay, we're going to make BillSpring the new FreshBooks. Like, how do you announce that to the handful of BillSpring customers? How do you signal that, like, hey, there's this whole new platform to people who are using the old platform and think about migrating people to the new one?
0: This was yeah. We we actually went ahead and public announcement was effective today. You know, FreshBooks has acquired BillSpring, and so all the BillSpring customers became FreshBooks customers, and that was that and then you know interestingly what happened was that then became the front door for all freshbooks traffic and things like that we started routing all our traffic at freshbooks.com through what is now the the billspring app and so that was kind of the the one two step of it all and so you know i think it was pretty much a non event for the billspring customers i like to think you know if you're going to be acquired by somebody in the space freshbooks is a good choice and a good track record of service and all that good stuff so i think they were you know just fine with it kind of like a new logo on the site otherwise no change for them and actually probably a better level of customer service and then uh, freshbooks customers or people new to freshbooks started signing up and getting access to the new freshbooks most of them at least from that point forward
1: What did you do with the old customers? Were they left on like a classic version of the app or did you just, were you able to import all their data on day one? I think this is an
0: underappreciated part of the story and where, again, I think significant innovation happened. What we decided to do was, you know, with the understanding that that new platform probably wasn't comparable yet, and which proved to be a very true, you know, hypothesis, what we said was, like, hey, new FreshBooks is available, but you don't have to, you don't have to switch. You, know, you can just keep using classic. So whenever I mean, we had NPS scores in like the sixties, like people love this. It's almost like a "Why are you building me a new product?" I love this thing kind of dynamic. We were doing it for the long run because we believed it was the right thing to do for the business. But you know, given that dynamic, you know, we were like, "Hey, we don't want to force anybody to to move over. Certainly not until we really understand that the product like is really, 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 really better." But we gave people the option, so we set up this thing where, "Hey, you can migrate if you want to." And we had a lot of people choose to go over to the new FreshBooks, which is great. We had a good number of those as well go over and say, "This is not ready for me," and go back. And that was a real reality check for us. I was like, "Uh oh, yeah, we have some work to do here." And that's where you realize, like, you know, that legacy platform that you built has a lot of stuff that's just not obvious and doesn't show up in like the feature list.
1: What's an example of that?
0: Well, so great, great example. Some of it's just like you know, how many clicks does it take to get from here to there? Right, which may sound trivial, but I think is important. But let's go with, yeah, you know, here's an example of a feature that wouldn't necessarily show up on the feature list. So when you receive a payment and you go, you know, like you get a check in the mail and you log into FreshBooks and you log that payment, we would send an email in FreshBooks Classic to your client if you want us to say, Thank you for the payment I gotta receive. Well, that email didn't happen in new FreshBooks for like years. And a lot of people really like that. It's a good way to communicate with your customer, it's a good way to say thank you. And it's not there. And so now all of a sudden that's a point of frustration for that, you know, that owner, if you will. And it's not the same. And you know, why isn't it at least the same? And by the way, I'm like, yeah, you know what? That experience makes a lot of sense. And like we just had so many things like that. And that's an email. So that's an actual thing. Like even in the interface, I talked about the front end doing things. Like we would try to remember some preferences and things like that for you. So for example, if your client liked to receive their invoices, you know, one way or another would be something we'd remember for you. And we just did it. And in new fresh books, we didn't even have the concept of you could get your invoice one of three different ways, that kind of thing. So they were subtle things, but important things to the experience and the relationships that our owners had with their clients.
1: Are there still people on uh, on the classic version, or has it been sunset? Yet? There are still people
0: on the classic version. There aren't many left, and we're starting to kind of move people over now, and and that's been going really well. But yeah, there's we kind of we're trying to get everyone uh, over time to move. But the first rule of business is it's got to be at least even or better, and we have a really clear picture of what that is these days. We were pretty naive about that when we first launched.
1: Uh, so re-platform, it's a five plus year journey. It sounds like at least to get rid of the old one even though all the new people are on the new one.
0: I'm sure every situation is different, but given the amount of love our customers had for the platform, the recurring nature of them, like we have people who have been paying us for over 10 years, right? Like there's no sense in pushing people to a new platform if they're just going to go ahead and cancel. You know, we fortunately uh, gave them the option to move and gave them the option to roll back if they wanted to.
1: Let's talk about going back to the funding in 2014, you'd raise that 30 million that we talked about, then I saw in twenty seventeen it was reported that you raised another forty-three million. Was that money that went into the business to fuel growth, or was that money to buy out shareholder or, you know, secondary to buy out shareholders, either yourself or other people who'd previously invested?
0: We have done so this is yes, those I mean your audience would probably be familiar, but you can do this thing called secondary where people sell shares or you can raise money and do primary, which is to fund operations. So we, we've done a little bit of secondary over the years, but nothing huge, huge, huge. But it's been nice, you know, for example, for my mom to be like, Hey, listen, you know, would you like some money and, and some other shareholders? That, that's the fun of being an entrepreneur. These people who believed in you, you're know, returning the money to them, you know, with a multiple. That, that's exciting. So she's still a shareholder, but she got to take some chips off the table, as they say. And so did uh, the parents of my co-founder, Joe, and they like bought a house, you know, in a cottage kind of thing. That's really exciting. So we've done some of that over the year, but for the most part, it's to scale and grow the business. Like We just have a, an enormous opportunity. The the business model and the, the salaries of software developers, they all just consume a bunch of capital. So that's the lion's share of the capital is just for growing the business.
1: So it sounds like you went, what was your first board meeting along this whole journey? Uh, was it with that person, the first institutional investor? Or did you have one earlier? We did some early days, we did some advisory meetings where we had Again my best friend's
0: dad was a former business person and we would meet with the founders and him early on and then it evolved into we had some we formalized things a little bit more so we had a board before the professional investors came and I came to like just the discipline of getting my thoughts organized quarterly and having some accountability i think those are really healthy dynamics even if it's kind of an advisory board they don't say have teeth like that for me was like oh, i'm accountable to you all to to follow up tell you what I'm doing, you know, think it through and then you know, to execute. Yeah. And then we formalize things and all the ways they do get formalized when people are writing $30 million checks. And we just constructed a great syndicate of investors who are still, you know, with us today and, you know, have uh, all the time in the world for.
1: Were you nervous at all walking into that first board meeting with the person who just written the $30 million check?
0: Yes. <laughs> I remember driving there, uh, <laughs> listening to uh, Dark Side of the Moon and just being like, it was like a trip. It's game time, right? You're you're going in there, and that that first board meeting was, uh, my God, we had like 14 people there. It was huge because people have like observers, and you know we've got the We ended up with sort of nine seats is where we started out, and it was it was just my word, it was huge. But yeah, we got through it. I think uh, started to learn how to manage those board meetings. Uh, it took a little while to kind of get it all the kinks worked out, but I think we've learned over the
1: years how to run a,
0: an effective board
1: meeting. What does go into running an effective board meeting?
0: Before I answer that question, I will tell you about the thing I did before that first board meeting, because I was so basically terrified about it. I said, I have no idea what I'm doing, right? So what do you do in that situation? You go to the customer. And so I, I literally, as was my custom in the basement with our customers of FreshBooks trying to figure out what they wanted, I literally, I just wrote my little structured survey and I said, okay, I'd like an hour of everybody's time. And in one case, I flew to Greenwich, Connecticut and sat down with Annie in person. And I was like, Hey, listen, just we're going to talk about lots of stuff, but I want to spend a good chunk of time on what are your expectations? And I remember Annie, one of the first things saying, Mike, CEO, my first expectation, no surprises. Right. And I was like, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's a good place to start. Right. Like any good news or bad, like don't surprise me. Right, so okay, I can work with that. And I went through okay, a board meeting. Like, what do you like? And I went from everything to like, you know, food, time of day, <laughs> which might seem tactical, but you know, the structure of it, the contents, and and so yeah, that's where I got to. And so it's funny you asked me this question. I'm gonna be think. I think the best way to think about it. I'm chair of another board now. and am kind of helping a CEO figure this stuff out. But I think you want to do an operational update, which is just like across every department, what did teams get done. Right. And make people feel like things are executing. Right. So it's just each department, give them a highlight from the last quarter, present the financials on track, off track to expectations and why. And so that's kind of the baseline stuff. But then ideally you have, you know, one, two, or three sort of strategic topics and/or executives kind of presenting, you know, plans with here's what we're going ahead and doing. And so that's the nature of it. It always amazes me, like there's very little Ideally, the strategic topics become good discussions and you're benefiting from sort of the wisdom in the room. I used to go ahead and just bring, hey, here are my big questions that I just sort of don't know and treat the board more like a group of advisors. I don't think that was actually the right dynamic. That wasn't as much fun for them as, like, okay, here's what we're going to go ahead and do. You know, respond if you like, but this is the plan of record, which I think is a little more the dynamic that actually investors are looking for as opposed to being treated like a, a board of advisors. So that was a, a lesson for me. It's subtle, but important. Anyhow, so that's a bit of a straw dog.
1: Interesting. And, and now as CEO, how would you say your time breaks down? Like what portion of your time is managing your board? What portion is dealing with the executive team, talking to customers if you're still doing those surveys? How does it break down?
0: Yeah, so my role, interestingly, about 18 months ago, I sort of reorganized it a little bit. So once you get to three, 400 employees in a software company, yeah certainly, as a founding CEO it's hard to do the work you really should be doing, which is the forward looking stuff and also the running of the business and the, the trains on time and so I brought a partner in a gentleman named Don Epperson. and we've been working together for the past two years, and he is really like driving the trains on time now, really doing most of the work we with the executive team to be like you know, hey, you said you do this, did that happen? you know like just all the coordination that really needs to happen that has really freed me up and and the way he when we came in, the, he was like, Hey, I've done this before. I'm zero to eighteen months. I'm kind of like running the day to day. You're 18 months plus. It took us a little while, and maybe it took me a little while to kind of get there. But you know, for me it means I work on product now. I work on sort of marketing and kind of like longer lead brand things. I spend a lot of time customer development and things pertaining to culture, which is all the stuff I love, right? And those are the intangibles and the pixie desk that founders, you know, are really special around. And so Probably the heart of it that my biggest value add is working with our head of product and you know we're managing the product and the platform build out over the next decade we'll spend you know well north of a quarter billion dollars on software like let's do a good job of that right and so that's where a lot of my time goes and that does lead into customers and research and, and what have you and I love it and for years I was trying to get there but it would be a very small part and I think I've got it kind of worked out now where I could spend more and more time doing that thanks to you know, partnering with Don and the rest of the executive team
1: And So how did that work? What title did Don have? And then how, you know, does the whole exec team then report to Don or or do they still report to you, but they just check in with him? Like, how exactly do you pull that off?
0: Yeah. So he, um, I'll put this out there because people are going to be wondering about this stuff. And, you know, I think a lot of what I'm going to say is really predicated on Don and, you know, different people have to work out different ways of doing things, but he's had success with the model I'm going to espouse. And I, I think it's been great. So the first thing I'll say is, Probably the way to think about it is, as a founding CEO, by the time you get to three hundred people, you know if you're either the execution machine or kind of the vision machine, and you're probably not great at both. So go ahead and get yourself a, a COO type, and let them like run the day-to-day growing of the business and the go-to-market motions and the trains on time and make sure the roadmap's happening. You figure out what goes in the roadmap and partnering with people, but. Anyway, yeah, that's the way I would sort of articulate it. And so, so Don just happens to be somebody who has been a CEO before. He likes the zero to 18 month stuff. And so that's how we organized it. And, you know, you think about decision rights when he came in, he was like, no, we're just both going to agree on everything. And we're not going to like have you decide this, I decide that, which was really interesting. I was like, we had a board member who recommended him, and I trust the guy, Jeff Fagnon, an accomplice. Like, I just completely trust him. You know, he's like had good success working with Don in the past. And so it took a leap of faith. Like it wasn't easy to be like, are you sure this is going to work out? But I have a good track record of partnering with people. And Don and I uh, sort of figured it out. And so, yeah, we just separate up the work. We started out where both of us, everyone would report to both of us. and We both went to a bunch of meetings. And now I am just less going to a lot of those and more focused on the places where I can uniquely contribute to the company. And then Don and I sync up a lot if i have things i want to see get done through the teams i'm like hey don let's talk about this and he kind of makes that happen which is awesome but i think every partnership would work it out differently and you know different people lean into different parts of businesses so that's how we worked it out
1: just to get a sense of the scale you're at now what's the employee count and rough revenue of the uh, business
0: yeah we're yeah so we don't disclose the revenues but think of us as uh we're getting close to 500 people so kind of mid 400s so 450, trying to hire like 50. yeah, you know, And then a lot of our sales and marketing spend is kind of program, not people spend. So it's a good size business. They kind of think of us as like a pre-IPO sort of scale.
1: How, if we looked at your schedule, like how heavily scheduled are you now? Like how many blocks are there on Google Calendar, Outlook, you know, versus free time that you have to do what you will with?
0: Well, the first thing that comes to mind with that is I'll say we're talking during a time of COVID. And, uh, you know, one of the things I've really had to do just to keep my mental health and everything going is change to just pretty much nine to five and nothing outside of that. So that's the first thing. So I'm a little more, I do do some morning things sometimes. And obviously I'll take a call if it's important outside of that, no problem. But I really try to be rigorous with that. It goes in waves. It really does. And so I think I'm right now, what I like is, even if I am wall to wall, more of it is going to these long term efforts, like the product efforts that so if it's wall to wall, I love that stuff, I know I'm contributing versus just getting caught up in being busy doing the things that need to get done to keep the business executing near term if that makes sense. So I think there's some relief in some of that, and yeah, I'm trying to do a better job of just you know white space time, but there's still a lot to do it's not It's not, it's not like there's not uh and so it's probably more full than I care to admit. <laughs>
1: And you know, it always strikes me like in the uh, Silicon Valley model, it's you know you vest stock for four years, and the idea is, hey, in four years, maybe the company's exited or found somewhere. But that that's kind of the time horizon. You've been at it for about seventeen years. How do you keep it fresh? How do you stay from just getting bored or you know wanting to go off in the sunset or or start a new company? Like, how do you stay focused after all these years?
0: So I have a few things going for me, one of which is the the partnership and my ability to focus on the things that I really love doing. Another one is when I've had thoughts around what else I might do, I just get literally struggled to think about something that's as appealing to me. As serving small business owners and making the difference that we can for them, and that largely turns into like, okay, what's the offering we're going to build, and how do we communicate with them? And then, actually, perhaps at least as important is that the culture we've built at FreshBooks. Yeah, we we win all kinds of awards, like the Great Places to Work stuff that like Google and Facebook. Like you know, we're like a top ten player in the seven thousand employee bracket for the last you know seven to the last eight years since we started doing it. We were that other year we were number eleven. So. That is a challenge. That's a perpetual game to keep a culture on track. And you know, by the way, we have the category's best rated product as well. And so for me, like sustaining excellence like that is really hard. And you know, it's an ongoing game that doesn't move. And it has meaning, right? Because the people having the experience that they do working at Freshbooks or that they have, you know, enjoying the products, that means a lot to me. And I think it's a good thing that we bring to the world and I really believe in business as a force of good. I know some people are suspicious of that, but I really 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 believe it and these are good canvases for me to show that and uh, you know obviously our other third stakeholder investors benefit along the way as well if we do those other th- two things well so that's just fun so it's not going challenge Greg I think the biggest part where it may have become really not rewarding for me is if the rule hadn't got split back up again like that's it's just tiring to do it all right and so I, I feel like I've got another career kind of happening and I think that's what happens is you have these sections of your career that just come back so the final thing I'll say is, I have co-founded another company, which I'm chair of, that is being run elsewhere, and I play a different role with that organization. And that has brought me a lot of gratification as well. So I think that's more of the creation phase. It's a little bit different. And I think, again, you talked about super strengths, like kind of put the team together there and and they're taking on an industry. And I think it's going to be a huge, huge, huge business. And I'm super passionate and excited about it. It's called uh, Brisa. It's in the insurance space, funnily enough, but insurance technology. So they're having huge success. And I think it's going to be tremendous. And And I'm getting to take a whole bunch of what I've learned at FreshBooks and redeploy it in like a 90-minute-a-week investment, which you know I feel like I'm contributing a great deal. So that feels good. So that's kind of my portfolio of things on a career side that kind of balances out and means that I'm in a good way.
1: How do you co-found a company uh, with 90 minutes a week? I think that's, that's probably the dream for a lot of longtime CEOs in a position like yourself. How do you do it 90 minutes a week without De facto becoming the CEO yourself and making all the decisions.
0: Yep. So you start by doing it on weekends. And so, you know, the idea came on a weekend. I was visiting a friend of mine who worked in insurance and I was telling him how technology is going to eat his industry alive. And then he was like, well, I'm kind of getting bored. Maybe I should try and do something. And I was like, if you do the work, I will support you, but I will not lift a finger for you. So if you call and have questions and you you need advice, I'll be there for you, but I am not doing any work. And so he said, okay. Classically, I'd say he's smart and lazy. turns out he's not that lazy now that he's the CEO of this company. But uh, (laughs) he started working on it at the sides and he kind of got a passion for it. And it was probably 12 months or so that he was working on it in the dark. And I said, okay, let me introduce you to somebody. I introduced him to the CTO I'd tried to hire three times. And they started working on the business together. So now he's got a co-partner. And so those are the kind of three founders of the company. We incorporated it. We put some of our own money into it. And then we would literally two or three times a year fly to a city, because we were all in three different cities. And we would like hit a whiteboard and figure out like, okay, how are we going to do this? And we were just trying to progress the business and figure it all out. And then we just did Sunday night calls. So that's how it started out. A couple of weekends flying. Sunday night sort of one hour call with the three of us. And then now it's a 90 minute, you know, sort of eight to nine thirty AM weekly standing meeting for me, where I think, you know, helping to deploy some of the the things I've learned at FreshBooks in terms of being that two week check-in again. I'm not making the decisions, but I'm, you know, sort of the team's doing a really great job, but I think they're benefiting from the rhythm of doing things that way and and just some of the the input that I can offer based on what I've seen.
1: When you do an arrangement like that, like how does the equity work? Because on one hand, you're bringing all your um, your knowledge and experience, but on the other hand, like you said, you're not lifting a finger. Does that get you one percent of equity? Fifty? Like what? You know, where? How do you think about that?
0: Yeah, we founded the company together, so that I mean, that's the way I think about it. And then what we did was on an annual basis, based on whoever put in the most sort of time, we drew them up with an equity grant. So we started out with like a founding thing and then people would earn more kind of options annually based on how much sort of time they put in until now it's sort of full time but we've raised two rounds of funding this year. It's kind of set and you know I participated in in some of the funding to help things go along as well. So that's been the dynamic and you know I think it's worked very well and it also means I'm hugely you know sort of committed to the success of the company, right? So I think there's a place to be on the cap table, but I'm not I'm not the largest shareholder in that company. Mm-hmm.
1: And so it's interesting it sounds like through that experience like to someone starting a company a SaaS company today versus in uh, a 2003 would you recommend the bootstrapping route or you'd say now hey you know VC and the money is so much more friendly just take the money
0: I think it depends on the opportunity and where you are with this company we seeded it for years actually before we raised external capital And we didn't put a lot of money in it. It was a lot of sweat equity and what are we doing and trying this out and making phone calls and are we getting clearer and whatever. And so I I think the answer is, you know, it sort of depends. I think for anyone who thinks that raising capital is an obvious choice, I would just say, like, why? And then it's kind of a a when. But you you do want to get to a place where conditions are set up for success. And I, I don't think of, you know, capital going in is being responsible for paying for you know your salary. <laughs> it's like it's to get to a return. Anyways, uh, in this case, this is going to take a bunch of capital because it's a big product build up front. But you know, that's other businesses. Maybe you have revenue sooner, and you know, you don't necessarily need the external capital to make it go the same way, or you can take it later. It depends.
1: Uh, shifting back to FreshBooks, what was your view on remote work prior to the pandemic? And what's changed about your view on remote work since, if anything?
0: So I think, you know, I spent less time thinking about remote work at all, and more time thinking about office culture, and where do people want to be and why. And I think that is sort of still true. And it's just painful in a remote world that we're living in. I believe, so by the way, we do offer employment in all kinds of work. But you know, I think that um, even remote work benefits from a really strong sort of office culture. These are my biases. When I think about, we have a thing at Fresh Books we call the four E's, execute extraordinary experiences every day. I think you get more opportunities to go ahead and do that and build a culture and community when you, when you have an office. I will triple down on that statement, having spent the last year now basically working remotely, right? There's just lots of things that don't happen and sort of can't happen in this world. And without the history of having worked in an office with people and the hope of the future of again, doing it, I would say we've been very successful with remote work, but it doesn't feel as fulfilling or sustainable to me personally. Maybe it's a period of time where you want to do it, but I, you know, I've seen people we've hired who did remote work for years who wanted to come to the office. So I think it's, I think you can change your mind. I don't think there's anyone like being dogmatic. Different people will have different opinions. Some people will, you know, want to be remote work forever. That's their prerogative. There are certainly benefits, but yeah, so that's just a bit of color on my personal outlook with regards to it. With regards to doing it, I think um, this is a very—I don't know if the word uh, sensitizing—but like, based on this experience, I feel like everyone has a lot more empathy for what remote working is. Now, I had worked at home by myself for years, so I had some idea of what it was about. But now, thanks to Zoom and a variety of other things, I think there's just better ways to do it than others, and the collaboration tools that are available. So I think this is a good thing for us, and I think our Long-term, post-pandemic, when we have offices back, remote employees will benefit from this time where we've learned how to do it better as an organization, even though I believe we will have offices and people wanting to go to them when it's over. So yeah, I think we're just more flexible. I think we'll have a lot of people who are doing three days a week in an office and two not. I might be one of those, right? I think that's a nice dynamic and you just feel like it's flexible and just get stuff done. Don't have to like show your face. I never really felt that way, but I'm sure people. And people in a lot of organizations are literally told they have to do that. So that's I don't think that's great.
1: Nice. And look, looking forward for FreshBooks, What do you see as the biggest challenge? Is it battling into it? Is it planning an IPO, dealing with a new level of management scale? What you know, what do you think is the crux of like what you need to prove going forward?
0: You know, I think it's more of the, the same in that it is um, very much we have a great need to continue to understand our customers and, and serve them. And as we scale, there are new and different segments we need to know and understand and serve. And so I think it still comes back to the customer. I think uh, you know serving small business is always an art and, and sort of working the business model and making that work. It's non-trivial effort. And I think that'll always continue to be a, a challenge for us. But uh, what I'm excited about is also the challenge is just building this massive global platform to serve small business owners. And that's, you know, how do we build that? How do we help it scale in many countries, you know, simultaneously is... You know, I think you know will play a huge hand in our success and failure in the, in the years to come, and so I am deeply encouraged by the track that we're on now. So excited about that! Yeah, I guess that plus talent uh, and then the need to you know have the, the best people working for your firm and you know, perpetuating our culture as they do or, you know just some of the some of the uh, things I'll be I'll be thinking about going forward.
1: Mike, well, this interview is a long time coming. Thanks so much for coming on Venture Voice. Greg, thanks
0: for having me.
1: Great to catch up. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of Venture Voice. Hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. FreshBooks is one of those companies I've always rooted for helping small businesses get paid. Being an entrepreneur myself, growing Muckrack, growing the Shorty Awards, I remember many nights sweating cash flow. I always admire any software vendor out there that has tools that can help me better manage that and better get ahead with it. If you like this podcast, please help get the word out. Leave a review on iTunes, tweet about it, tell your friends, email other entrepreneurs that you know, and also let me know what you think. You can find me very easily. Just go on Twitter or Instagram. My username is simply at Gregory. I signed up early enough, just at Gregory or find me on LinkedIn or whatever other platform you love. Thanks for listening. See you next time.